Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. This is your first time here in the show. Good news, it's a really simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are, and we want to hear about the educators who've inspired you and the people in your community who deserve a spotlight. Every educator we have on this podcast, whether teacher, coach, or professor, is nominated by you, the folks who listen. So be a part of the show. Tell us about the person who comes to your mind. Email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. This week on the show, Jason Klein. He just started as the Senior Director of Education Partnerships and Learning Solutions with the Northern Illinois University College of Education and Center for P20 Engagement. That was a lot. But he has spent the last 25 years working in just about every level of education. He's been a classroom teacher. He's led technology and instruction at districts. He's been a principal and assistant superintendent. And now he works with state agencies, advocacy groups, and so many others to help schools collaborate and find solutions across Illinois. One of the questions I learned to ask early in my career as an educator is, was my experience maybe not everybody's experience or was it? And how, how can we help ensure that all the ways in which I may have been lucky or that the system was, was biased in my favor, that we make sure we unbiased systems and that all kids are lucky in those same ways. I think his work is so interesting because he's at once looking at education through this macro statewide lens and then also spending time in schools to see how things are working from a school to school, student to student perspective. All of that coming up on this show. Okay, before we get to our conversation with Jason, in the spirit of his work analyzing data and putting together reports, I wanted to bring you a few data-centric stories. First up, last year during the 2021-22 school year, districts across the country faced a really unusual problem, a shortage of school bus drivers. And it led to canceled bus routes and left parents scrambling to find their kids a ride to school. And I got to check out some data to see just how disruptive these shortages were. Ten minutes down the road on her way to work, Joni Carter gets a message on her phone. Her 14-year-old daughter's school bus was canceled again. And now she has to double back to her Yorkville home, pick up her daughter, and take her to school herself. Then there were those days where you didn't necessarily get that notice not through their fault, but hey, maybe I was busy and I missed it, and here's my kid walking back to the house and I've driven off already. The Yorkville School District canceled her daughter's route regularly at the beginning of the last school year, and it kept up intermittently throughout the rest of the year, too. To prepare for the next school year, Carter's already changed her work schedule so she can drive her daughter to school. Carter's situation is far from unique. Countless parents struggled to find their kids a ride. Some, like Carter, were working, and many just didn't have access to transportation to get their kids to school. Some school districts tried to ease that pressure on parents, and they provided alternative transportation options, or, as DeKalb did, even reimbursed parents for driving their kids to class if there were cancellations. Like many school districts, Rockford Public Schools had never canceled a bus route before last year. That's according to the district transportation director, Michael Slife. But as the school year began, they didn't have nearly enough drivers. We started off the school year with uh, 12 cancels, I believe, every day. In September alone, RPS canceled 226 routes. Early on, that meant that around 1,400 students would be left without a ride in a given week. They started offering $3,000 signing bonuses and weekly attendance incentives to recruit potential new drivers. In the meantime, Every morning was hectic. Substitute drivers would take a few routes. Maintenance staff and administrators had to drive just so they could keep their heads above water. It's also still a pandemic and they had drivers get sick. Slife said they had between 15 and 20 people call in sick every day. Sometimes upwards of 40 drivers would be out. This caused unplanned route cancellations on top of the ones the district anticipated. Last year, RPS canceled 126 routes beyond those that they had planned for. Slife says last-minute call-offs and cancellations made it more confusing for the drivers who showed up. With all the changes and all the cancellations, there were new people on routes every day. New drivers driving routes with students they didn't know, streets they didn't know, which caused extra delays. Even though Rockford hired more drivers and canceled fewer routes as the school year went on, the overall numbers are significant. In total, 754 routes were cut during the 2021-22 school year. Some students and some schools were hit harder than others. 
Slife said that was by design. He says they tried to drop fewer routes at schools with historically lower attendance rates. Every route includes students from multiple schools, and Slife says the district also factored in grade levels when deciding which routes to cut. They prioritized the attendance at the, the elementary level. Data obtained by WNIJ shows that cancellations impacted high schools the most. Over 300 rides were canceled for Guilford High School and Jefferson High School students more than any other RPS school. Guilford and Jefferson's attendance rates are around the district's average. For the most part, Rockford Elementary schools with the lowest attendance were scratched the least. At the middle school level, the numbers are more complicated. West and Flynn Middle School students have much lower attendance rates than the district average, but each school had bus rides canceled over 100 times last year. Michael Slife at RPS says they still have about 30 driver openings right now. I'm feeling better than last year, but not. I don't feel like we're out of the woods. We had quite a few retirees at the end of the year and some people that said they weren't coming back. They still have some time to hire before the next school year starts, but at this point, they don't know if the cancellations will have to continue into the next school year. And next up, this spring, an investigation from ProPublica and the Chicago Tribune showed how students are ticketed by police for in-school incidents and have to pay fines. And I got to look at how much DeKalb students have had to pay over the last few years. In early March of this year, a 12-year-old student was caught with marijuana at Clinton Rosette Middle School in DeKalb. On top of their school's choice of discipline, whether it be detention, suspension, or expulsion, school police also issued them a $750 fine. And two months later, that debt was sent to a collections agency where they now owe $1,147.50. Steve Leckis is the commander in charge of community services and the school resource officer program at the DeKalb Police Department. He says that's unusual. It's very rare that, that I've seen any you know, fines levied against kids because, again, what ends up happening is it just punishes the parents. But a public records request by WNIJ found that since 2019, there have been more than 60 student fine debts sent to collections in DeKalb. Additionally, several student fines were paid and closed out before collections agencies could get involved. Most owed between $800 and the nearly $1,200 the Clinton-Rosette students' family has to pay. These student tickets are mostly issued because of fighting or marijuana, which become city ordinance violations like fighting in the city or possession of cannabis. State law prohibits schools from using fines as discipline, but police can when students are referred to them. Not every police department tickets students. Some school districts have a memorandum of understanding with police and school resource officers asking them not to issue citations for minor in-class disciplinary issues. Since ProPublica and the Chicago Tribune's The Price Kids Pay investigation, Illinois State Superintendent Carmen Ayala has urged schools to stop working with police to issue tickets for in-school behavior incidents. She wrote, quote, If your district slash schools are engaging in this practice, I implore you to immediately stop and consider both the cost and the consequences of these fines. In DeKalb, Superintendent Minerva Sanchez-Garcia said in a statement to WNIJ that the district's new agreement with school resource officers eliminates the use of fines for student violations. Garcia Sanchez said, quote, the agreement provides that if citations are issued to students by the SROs, the appropriate disposition shall be an order requiring community service. DeKalb Police Commander Steve Leckis says that not every ticket issued prior to that agreement resulted in a fine. Since 2019, DeKalb Police have issued a total of 212 tickets to students for in-school behavior, and many are resolved without financial penalty. Leckis says their goal is to connect students to resources that help them stay out of trouble. Most often that happens through DeKalb County's Early Risk Assessment Project. Michael Vendetti is the director of the DeKalb County Court Services, which operates the project. And he says it's a free program where youth who are arrested or ticketed for the first time are diverted away from the juvenile court system and into intervention services like mental health counseling. It's been around since 2014, and he says one of the most important things that they do is a risk assessment. You know, a young person that gets caught with marijuana uh, in school, the knee-jerk reaction is to, okay, well, we need to get them into substance abuse intervention services. Well, the, the risk assessment is going to tell us what is leading up to that particular behavior. There's, you know, there's other circumstances going on in that youth's lives that has led them to using drugs or alcohol or making questionable decisions. The Early Risk Assessment Project is designed 
designed to take six months, but it can be finished much more quickly. Vendetti says the program has boasted a less than 1% recidivism rate. And he adds that students who participate in this program won't have to pay a fine and would get the arrest off their record. However, many of these student tickets are ordinance violations that, by Illinois law, can't be expunged. Governor J.B. Pritzker said in a statement this spring that he wants to make sure fining students for in-class behavior, quote, doesn't happen anywhere in the state of Illinois, and that he's expecting to see legislation addressing it. Okay, now it is time for my conversation with Senior Director of Education Partnerships and Learning Solutions, the fascinating and insightful Jason Klein. Typically, I ask this question near the end of my interviews, but I kind of want to start it forward for you and kind of get into a little bit of the, the origin story of how you got into education in the first place. But the question I want to ask is, who's the best teacher you've ever had? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, so first of all, I or mean, one I'll start. Of, one up. We won't yeah, make you well, pick that one. Well, I'll start with the acknowledgement that both my parents are, were, are retired teachers. So mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, that's an, a call out that you often make. Um, as you're talking with other people in your own life. And I think it's a really important call out um, for me. I think um, the political part of me avoiding giving the specific answer, but giving starting with this and working towards the specific answers, we'll say, unsurprisingly, all of the best teachers I had um, were deeply respectful of of students. or at least that was how I felt. One of the questions I learned to ask early in my career as an educator is, was my experience maybe not everybody's experience or was it? And how, how can we help ensure that all the ways in which I may have been lucky or that the system was, was biased in my favor, that we make sure we unbiased systems and that all kids are lucky in those same ways that's built in. Well, it's Um, interesting you say that really quick, though, because, again, I know that one of your kind of instructional focuses is about problem-based learning. And, again, you had another Mm -hmm. quote in there talking about how sometimes that's challenging for teachers because – I think you said that like everyone is an expert at school. And so a lot of people that go into education to be teachers are people that did really well in school and kind of assume that their experience could be just everyone's experience. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of research that goes back decades now that says that instructionally, we pretty much do what was done to us. So of course, Um, If that didn't work for everybody in your fourth grade or your seventh grade or your 10th grade classroom uh, or your post-secondary classroom, then then we need to unlearn that for starters. And unlearning things is very, very hard. And the more expert you become, I think the harder it is oftentimes to unlearn it. And um, again, to some degree, we've all become experts, right? I, I mean, the the popular notion of the 10,000 hours. I've never, I don't, I don't know how many hours we spend in school from kindergarten through 12th grade at a minimum, but let's just say that uh, our, our new teachers coming out of their, um, let's say a traditional new teacher coming out of a, a bachelor's degree experience at age 22, 23 years old, um, they're certainly expert at that point on what schooling has been. And so unlearning that is, is very, very hard. It's and some of the best teachers up. you've had are people that kind of intrinsically or, you know, have, have learned that over the course. Yeah. So, so one example I'll give is I learned, I, I really learned to write. And this is some of why we need to break down some of these walls that schools have traditionally relied on. The two best writing teachers I had for me were, were in eighth grade and in my junior year of high school. And they were both teaching social studies or history courses. Now, again, there's probably a whole bunch of culture and other, other things wrapped up in this. These were both white male teachers. Um, I, you know, my, as I said, my dad was, was, was a teacher. He was white. He was male. Um, he, was, he was an interested learner. I was very lucky. We every year, multiple museums, um, live sporting events, live theater. I mean, we, we were not wealthy. I had, for many of those years, only one working parent and working as a teacher at a time when 
Uh, teachers were certainly not overpaid. They're certainly not overpaid today, um, but we were moving out of the underpaid period and into the well-paid, decent paid. Yeah, yeah. right, definitely. Um, but again, my dad for, for 32 of his 34 years had a second job um, uh, and and worked, you know, three nights a week and uh, and one day on the weekends. Um, and that, that made a huge difference in our family financially. But again, I was very lucky to have all these experiences. And certainly these two teachers in eighth grade and in 11th grade had things in common with, with my own family. Um, and, and they taught me how to write. Um, now I would end up being uh, in my second principalship, uh, principal of, of the middle school in which one of those teachers uh, was still working, was finishing out his career. And um, there was a grade level meeting one day. So all of the teachers, we were middle school, we were divided into teams and all the teachers were there and system principal was, was in the meeting. I was in the meeting. I don't know who else was in the meeting, but we're talking about this notion of, of all being literacy teachers that we all needed as our, as our students required this for a variety of reasons. We were proud and excited to have a district-wide ESL program. Um, and we also had students who, uh, in addition to speaking all the different languages at home that students spoke that were, that were classified as ESL, we had Spanish, Polish, and Russian bilingual programs as well. And so we had, we, there are a lot of different reasons. We know we have to develop vocabulary actively in students. And, and we know that the way you do not do that is by giving students, uh, you know, copy the definition and write a sentence using the word. They have to be much more actively engaged in using the vocabulary, hopefully to, to help solve a problem and to articulate how they've solved that problem. And um, so the conversation come up and, and, you know, well, we're not all teachers of literacy, Jason. And there I am, some some young punk principal. I was right about this, but I was still some young punk principal. And I said, I said, well, two things. Number one, in this school, we're all going to become teachers of literacy. And number two, one of the best teachers of literacy I ever had is sitting right here and taught social studies, uh, and is teaching social studies. And and you know, I learned how to write in this person's classroom. And so. Uh, this is not new. In other words, we, we, can, we can do this and we can do it effectively. And so again, that's not to say, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in a, a building that some of the, the most top-notch experts in literacy have worked in and who have more knowledge in, you know, in their pinky fingers about literacy than I have certainly in my whole body or experience. And so we definitely want to have our literacy experts. And, and But I also think you look at that and you look at, at what we've traditionally done and if that's really working well or not and how we can do it better. One of the ways we can do it better is ensuring that all teachers are really confident and competent in, in teaching literacy and that we're all capable of doing that. And again, these teachers, um, that I think of were, were teaching us across uh, cross-curricular areas. And, and that's certainly been a bedrock of, of what, I, what I think works, what I think the research tells us works and what I've been lucky enough to have opportunities to try and help people do uh, or yeah. to do myself. I was gonna say that cross, you know, breaking down barriers and collaboration seems to be one of the main themes of your career going back there to also the work that you're doing you know, matchmaking with, you know, P20 and with NIU. But I'm glad you mentioned that your your parents were, were teachers too, because as you mentioned, you know, mine were too. And I, I, it's interesting. I know that you said that you went, I've heard another interview that you said that you went into college not knowing what you wanted to do and not having education particularly in mind. I didn't either. And also, you know, that I, I didn't end up becoming a, a teacher, education adjacent journalist, but you did, even though I believe this was something that your parents didn't necessarily want you to become a teacher, right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So, uh, so I started college as a political science major. And again, one of the reasons I just adore my current role, because, um, you know, there's things I learned in that that I, I apply in this job. But it was in my very first semester. It was, it was actually on my second day of classes. It was a Friday. Uh, classes had started on Thursday. And 
Uh, I was in Political Science 150 American Government. It was a special section, not in the big theater, but just for political science majors. There was about 35 of us in the room. And um, the person who was teaching the class, an instructor and a, a fellow at an institute on campus, um, asked us one of the first things out of her mouth. She said, how many of you want to go to law school? In my memory, I don't know if this is entirely accurate or not, but my memory of this is that I was the only one who didn't raise my hand. And I don't even know why, how did I know I didn't want to go to law school? Like everybody for years said, oh, you'd have so much fun being an attorney. And yet here I was making this decision uh, just before my 18th birthday saying, oh, I don't want to go to law school. And somehow not putting my hand up that day, like in my head, I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not going to law school. And uh, Okay, so I'm, I love this class. It was an election year, presidential election year. Um, an interesting time. We had a, an important Senate race at the time in Illinois, and I, I was about to vote for the first time. So like I was, I was in it. Like this was, I loved it. And yet I was the only one in there that didn't want to be a political scientist. So what was I going to do with a political science degree? And there was no like counseling or advising around like, here are things you could do. Here are options. And so I said, well, you know, let me see if maybe I can get a teaching certificate and then I've got something to fall back on. The worst way we could view teaching. And there I was, yeah, yeah. you know, dumb, dumb, though, thinking I knew everything. But this was OK. So I find out that there is this in history, uh, which was not how the university really worked. It was pretty small. It's different than how our university works at the, at the time, at least it was small. Um, you could earn your certificate, your teaching certificate through the history department versus through the College of Ed. So it would allow me to keep things closer to what I'd already started doing. Okay, great. Sounds great. Still thought, I'm going to do something with this. I'm going to go to graduate school. Maybe I will go to law school. <clears throat> Fast forward like another year, and I'm now starting to take education classes. And it was a, it was a very quick, very short road to falling in love. Uh, with that and uh, eventually realizing probably while student teaching, probably even before teaching, but certainly in my, my very early in my teaching career that I didn't have to check those other passions at the door. As a matter of fact, there was an important place for those, particularly in public education, right? To be aware of, you know, our bosses, our bosses as public educators certainly sit in the general assembly in Illinois and in the governor's mansion um, by the laws they enact, the funding that they support, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, so yeah, that was my story. I did tell my parents um, on, a, on a Friday night that they were uh, on campus visiting. We'd gone out to dinner, and I kind of dropped it in the car on the way back from dinner. And they both, um, at the time, did not like the idea. Oh, uh, really? Even at that point? They didn't immediately, like immediately, they didn't like that. I've heard on this and, on this show, we've heard a version of like, you know, my parents are teachers. They told me not to be a teacher. But then when I told them this was my passion, they were like, we always knew this was the right path. <laughs> not, not in this case. <laughs> so as a as a parent now of of young people moving into that phase in their life, I'm just going to plead the fifth uh, completely <laughs> on this one. Not yeah, that I, was I have any say, fear you have a, you that. Have, yeah, you they, I have no fear that they would listen teacher? to anything. Yes, I have a, a, a son uh, who will be who's just graduated high school and a, a daughter who is entering 12th grade. So we are in the thick of a lot of the work that I do uh, or have been doing uh, through the Illinois P20 network and uh, with the, the secondary to post-secondary transition as one of those key systemic points that we're trying to help smooth out for for young people and right. so um well, let's, but let's keep yeah. in mind i yeah. know nothing about this when i walk into my own house let's just be super clear about <laughs> well, that no, of, course. So. of course come on now you know it's it's funny though bringing up the like going into college not really knowing what you want to do exactly and then kind of being able to explore and even though you didn't end up going into you know law being able to take those passions for politics with you into whatever the career is that you wanted to pursue. Because I think about like, I was lucky enough to go to a community college where I you know, didn't have to worry about spending mm -hmm. you know, $40,000 a year to experiment with different classes. I could kind of choose what I wanted. And it was kind of the same thing with me. Like I remember my, it was my second year. So like my last year at community college was 2016. So 
I was in a local and state government course during that election year, so I was immediately mm-hmm. sucked in. Thought it was fascinating, and then at the same time was taking like Shakespeare acting courses, mm-hmm. and I like kind of feel like I've melded those two things together into the career that I'm at now. And I like I don't think that it was a coincidence or mistake that I ended up where I am, given that even though. I didn't necessarily, you know, end up joining the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> yeah, no, you absolutely have melded those things. And I think that's right. So a big part of the work that that many people around the state, many school districts are doing, certainly community colleges are doing a great job of this, is, is exactly what you just hit on, which is we don't want, we can't have young people. There are there are very few young people and very few families who are who who are in a position in the state of Illinois or elsewhere to say, yeah, you can figure it out over a four year bachelor's degree experience. And if you decide at the end of that that you don't really like it, that's OK. That's Just run it that back. Is, yeah. Try that, again. Yeah, that is not how this works. And so. And it's also funny because when I was not funny, uh, interesting, maybe, but when I was originally hired, so I, I did, I graduated in the middle of the year, um, a student taught in the fall and graduated December, January, and was very lucky to move immediately into a teaching position. And it was, it was funded by a federal grant. Um, this, was, this was during the Clinton administration. It was called the Learning to Work Grant. And uh, about... 90% or more of uh, Illinois' career and college readiness efforts over the last six or seven or eight years have really been directly in line with that Learning to Work grant from much longer ago. But that Learning to Work grant was based on a couple of things. One was a report by the U.S. Department of Labor that kind of spanned um, the, the Bush, George H.W. Bush administration and the Clinton administration called the SCANS report. And the SCANS report talked about the future of work. And um, these things that we have now in Illinois through the Illinois State Board of Education uh, called the cross-sector essential employability competencies, which is a mouthful. So we call them the essential skills for short, but business leaders like to call them the soft skills. Uh, a, a name I take issue with, a title I take issue with, because it implies, um, soft to me implies that they're easy. And I think we have traditionally assumed that as people matured and became adults, they would have mastered those soft skills. When in fact, we know those essential skills or soft skills are incredibly complex and difficult. Ask people not just supervisors about their employees or employees about their supervisors, but ask peers about one another in the workplace and and what do you like about colleagues or what bothers you the most about colleagues? It's almost always these essential skills that are either their tremendous strengths that make them so valuable, a colleague, uh, an employee, a supervisor, or the opposite. And communication um, and is the big one that stands out, right? That, well, that is one of the that yeah. is one of the big ones. I mean, there's ten listed in Illinois, yeah. but adaptability and flexibility, organization, right. initiative and self-drive, cultural competence is one. Mm, yeah. um, I mean, certainly the the ten years I was lucky enough to spend um, leading technology and instruction in two super diverse school districts. We're hopping on calls like this long before COVID with people all over the place. You had to have a level of cultural competence because we're interacting with people at very different experiences than you. The thing our students in those districts were so lucky about is every day in their classrooms, they were interacting with people with very different experiences with them because literally the whole world had had fallen into these uh, suburban Chicagoland neighborhoods. And again, that was going to be a real gift for these students for their futures in a, a world that has been made extraordinarily small based on technology first, and then the economic results of technology second. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that you what you're saying, that's what we're trying to do is give students, and this is the other piece of the Learning to Work grant, I'm sorry, is that there was research showing that as early as sixth grade, students were making kind of life pathway decisions. And not that they were picking a major or career, but they were going, um, I, I see myself continuing on beyond high school or more frequently, they were figuring out what doors they thought were closed to them. 
as early as sixth grade. And so instead, what we know we want to do and what we've got multiple pieces of legislation in Illinois that we're working to do um, uh, statewide and that so many school districts and community colleges um, are doing really a great job with and an ever improving job with and that's giving students opportunities to explore these things uh, while they're in school. So they can start to, and sometimes that means a student is earning something like called a career pathway endorsement. And that's awesome. Yeah. And you see those times, at a lot of school districts, like, you know, I think of Rockford, you know, mm-hmm. maybe third with their bi- career academies, career Rockford, academies. Yep. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what like third biggest yep. school district in the state that's doing that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Now the flip side is one of the other successes that we need to figure out how to count and measure is when a student goes down one of those roads and says, Oh my goodness, I do not like that. And that is hard to count yeah. because we're not counting a thing a student completed, but we are count. We that is a success. That student is not now going to spend one hundred to two hundred thousand dollars of money that they are going to have to pay back over decades for something that they they really didn't like or that we don't need. The other piece, last piece of this, is these essential skills are obviously the really important for workplace success. And um, I would also make the argument that you know our schools have. If, if we want to have a highly functioning democracy where we can discuss and debate difficult issues in respectful ways and come to come to compromise and then consensus around the compromise uh, and, and keep inching forward in those ways together, um, I would make the argument that these same essential skills, this, this list, is incredibly important, not just for workplace success and not just so people young people can grow up to be employees somewhere, but also for for society, for our work, for our, for our communities to function as communities. So yeah. it's um, it's really exciting work. And and I, I will add, um, and I, I know you have opportunities to see this in our in your role and and probably most of the listenership of of the work you do understands this. But man, the young people uh, I worked with the superintendent who likes to say uh, yeah, young people aren't worse today than they were. No, they're better. They're better. They're better than we ever were. And I see, I am so lucky to see it. Which, by the way, is what we want. That that should be the goal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Our young people, our our middle school and high school age people, our students, our young people are just out of high school. There are so many extraordinary things that so many of them do. um, and, And really credit to them and and the more we can turn over to them, including the learning process, they, they will do it and they will do a better job than, than we can ever imagine. So our job as educators is to craft those environments and provide certain scaffolding, scaffolding and structures within it to make sure they learn the skills and then to help assess it and create opportunities for those students to reflect on, am I doing this? Oh no, I'm still not doing this really well. And knowing when to say, I need help. I need someone to show me this. I need to practice this. and then make them practice it and give them opportunities to practice it. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show is because I feel like you have experience at so many different levels of education, right? You were a classroom teacher, you were a principal and assistant superintendent, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and now working both like with state agencies and at the higher ed level, we consistently hear on this show about, you know, teachers, who go into leadership positions, which inevitably means they have to leave the classroom and not have you know, as many of the experiences that made them fall in love with education in the first place, right? Are those like individual day-to-day moments with their students. But I know that at least with the work you were doing with, with P20, and I'm assuming with the work that you're doing now, you do get the chance to sometimes go into schools, go into classrooms, and have those experiences, which I imagine can be very grounding when you spend a lot of your time looking at very macro data and things like that. Yeah, I mean, um, it was great. Like the second half of this year, I was in schools. Most weeks I was in at least one school. Sometimes, sometimes I was in schools you know, multiple days a week and multiple schools within a day at times. And, um, and it's awesome. Cause I'm learning 
from the students and and from the teachers when I'm in those settings now for sure and trying to soak up everything and actually we just had a meeting uh, this morning where where we talked about the importance of of being in schools I mean we've got three new team members uh, starting the day after we record this um, who who are coming straight out of schools and I'm assuring them that you know, well, the first two weeks of school in most places, we need to give them their space to, to get their things going without us dropping by. Um, you know, by the time we hit Labor Day, certainly we'll be we'll be in schools all the time. And it's critical that we are and that we we feel it and we experience it and, and know and, and never lose sight of. I mean, that is truly where the rubber meets the road. I. Uh, a school improvement plan is worthless if it's not alive within each classroom. Right. And, um, and it's the same with, with anything at a district level or certainly at a, a state or nat national level. Right. And I do want to get into a little bit more. We've, we've talked a little bit about the work that you do with P20 and about connecting schools with resources, breaking down barriers, all that sort of thing. But I guess we can accomplish this by going... I, like you said, you're going into schools on like a weekly basis. What does the week-to-week -week schedule of Jason Klein look like? And like what actually is kind of the, you know, the day-to-day -day workflow? Because I know that you're going in a lot of different directions, talking to a lot of people. But just to give folks an idea of the day-to-day -day work that you guys are doing, both P20 and with NIU. So the so first of all, the Illinois P20 network is a group of um, well, we'll be updating our numbers this week, um, but approximately 200 school districts, community colleges, uh, four-year universities, state agencies, um, and then other both professional groups as well as advocacy groups um, that it seeks to take our system, which in Illinois we have. 852 school districts, the most per capita school districts in the country. We have our awesome system of 47 community colleges. Um, we have our, our wide range of public universities and um, early childhood, for example, exists in so many different spaces that that alone um, on its own, as its own system is incredibly complex. And then within a bigger system, of lifelong learning, and that's where P20 comes from, is this concept of essentially learning from, from birth or early childhood through ongoing learning as an adult, both formally graduate classes, as well as informally um, in a variety of ways. And so we seek to, to improve systemic things that cut across those different systems. And so not all things cut across all of the systems, like the secondary to post-secondary transition, um, other things like the teacher shortage literally cut across all of the systems. Everybody is is suffering from it and or part of the solution to it. And so, um, so what is a what does a week look like? Well, I've seen your I've seen again I've seen your calendar. I know it's a lot. So a typical school year week um, is a mix of. So there's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of meetings, um, but it's a it's a mix of meetings that exist. Everything from roll up your sleeves meetings with practitioners about like actually how does our school district implement this, or how does our community college implement this, to um, to instructional level meetings, to working directly with teachers on instruction and assessment on designing an instructional unit or a, a team-based challenge and how do we assess that? What does a, a rubric or a checklist look like? What are we looking for? How do we align the standards? What instructional strategies are we using? What materials do we have? What new materials do we need? Um, which of these electronic tools is the best piece to use for this with our students' Chromebooks or iPads or whatever they have? So so those things are all happening. Um, again, there's, there's meetings that are, are there's obviously across these different projects, you have internal coordination meetings. Um, you're, you're constantly looking at resources. And then, and then there's doing the actual work. There's um, everything from, from analyzing data to writing reports to putting together slide decks that you're going to use with uh, principals or teachers or, or post-secondary faculty. Um, 
And so a lot of that work, frankly, like, like for many teachers happens at night or on the weekends and, and your day, like for many teachers is filled with, with doing these other things. Um, it is exciting most weeks being out in a building. Um, I find Illinois, I, I find when I'm in the car driving places across Illinois, I find it to be beautiful. I mean, it's, it's underrated. Not the, it underrated for sure. Underrated. I Again, had to drive through Florida last year and that was so much worse. I would take Illinois uh, 10 days out of 10 versus driving through Florida with nothing. Agreed. I will leave it at agreed and agreed a hundred percent. So, I mean, but I do find, you know, our culture and our, our demographics in Illinois is so diverse. Um, we are the United States in a single state. A lot of uh, a lot of people have, have said that. A lot of people have said, oh, we should have the first primary because we represent the United States better than any other single state in this country. And we certainly see that in the work we do in every way, shape, or form. And so that's that's really interesting and, and pretty exciting, too. Um, and so getting into different schools, again, I, I mean, I can walk through an empty school and feel like I'm learning a lot. Um, and and by what you see, by the artifacts you see. Um, and by and large, one of the big themes of what I've learned in my three years here, first of all, without question, there are incredibly caring and hardworking people uh, in every educational role across the state from, from end to end, from, yeah. Beyond that, they're also incredibly talented and uh, creative people solving problems across this state from end to end. And, uh, and so it's a real privilege. I mean, that's, that's what it is. It is a privilege to be able to get to interact with, with people like that and learn from them. And then again, to the matchmaker point you, you've mentioned earlier that I've, I've said before about this work, to try and bring those ideas from that person to those people or connect the people directly or whatever the case is, it's, it's very special. And, and I've certainly found um, since March 13th of 2020, having, having worked in those roles in actual schools, uh, if I ever think I'm busy or I ever get a little tired, uh, it's pretty easy to find some motivation knowing, knowing what your colleagues are, are really doing um, and knowing that your role is to support them or sometimes to serve as an offensive lineman to, you know, run through some stuff so they can be the the quarterback, the running back, or the fullback going straight through for the touchdown. Um, and it, I mean, it's just it's incredibly motivating. It's easy to be like, okay, I got to work a little later tonight because these people need this, and I I'm the one who they're expecting to do it, so I got to do it so they can do the really hard work, uh, easier or better or whatever the case is. And so again, it's a privilege to 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 be able to do that work, knowing that really all you're trying to do is, is help um, really talented people do the work they're, they're capable of doing and, and are doing to help, help learners. Okay. Let's, yeah. let's finish off with, with some rapid fire kind of questions. Okay. Because again, I was excited to have you on because of this kind of all encompassing perspective you've had over so many different levels of education. So we'd be remiss not to take advantage of that. And I kind of want to ask, you mentioned the pandemic, how, you know, over the last two years or so, schools have been so massively disrupted. And now, you know, people are, are largely back to quote unquote normal, functioning in a similar way to the way things were. But what are a few issues that you think are crucial as we reflect on the last two years and move forward, just what are the things that you've got your eye right on, on right now? Well, one thing is how, how professional learning moves forward specifically, and I'll get to the bigger thing it's part of. There was a substitute shortage prior yeah. to the pandemic. Um, I mean, in, in 2017, 2018, 2018, 2019, I was a principal. And uh, Sunday night through Thursday night, I was a principal of a school that had a substitute shortage pretty much every single day. And we had to worry about covering those classes and, and doing so in a way that was sustainable for teachers that didn't burn teachers out and that helped students learn, most importantly, at the center of that. And so a lot of professional learning has been built on the back of two things, of teachers wanting to learn and being willing to do the extra work to learn 
and and um, teachers being pulled out of their classrooms on work days to to learn at an institute day or excuse me on an institute day because the students aren't there but at a at a district uh, meeting kind of event professional learning event um, at a conference and we need substitutes for those so we we have we have all kinds of educator educational staffing crises crises right bus drivers cafeteria uh, employees nurses. yeah paraprofessionals certainly nurses certainly teachers those are the ones that we know get um, counselors, other clinicians, it is end to end. It also includes substitute teachers. And and with and we we have relied very heavily on substitute teachers to help the growth that we have experienced in schools over the past three or four decades. The bigger piece then is sustainability. Hmm. It is a lot on our superintendents to engage their elected school boards who are their bosses, right? Their school board members are, are their direct bosses as, as the superintendent in really, really long-term thinking and long-term planning. Now we have a, a lot of wonderful, very smart school board members who are volunteers essentially. While they're elected, they are volunteers. Let's make no mistake about that. They are nonpartisan volunteers uh, in school districts across the state, but to, and to really help them though, think very long-term. Uh, and beyond their next election cycle, for example, and and um, and come up with sustainable ways to help teachers continue to grow throughout their career, um, which requires a lot of professional learning. Um, it probably requires us to pull back from the amount of work that teachers do outside the school day. Um, and and to really relook at that, it's probably going to require some additional investment. I mean, I have real ideas of what some of the solutions to these things are. Um, a lot of them involve the calendar, which is uh, complete seismic shifts, both in the amount of money we need for paying teachers for extra weeks, and uh, you know, while there's many places very successful with with year-round education, um, there's still also very strong culture around the idea of summer vacation in the United States, right? And so, and year-round education doesn't eliminate summer vacation. That is a, a very common myth. Um, it does shrink it though. That is not a myth. And so um, changing some of those those things culturally are huge. There's no question. It's So there's that sustainability piece though. Um, we can't be a profession that is gonna have an ongoing shortage of professionals of all kinds. Um, and there's really cool work being done uh, at NIU, the College of Ed has programs with U46, the second largest district in the state based in Elgin, and in Rockford, the third largest district in the state to help paraprofessionals move to special education teachers, for example. Um, there's a program where uh, high school graduates. Right, uh, homegrown spend, bilingual teachers. That's I don't, right. So, right. Yep, the pledge program, two years at Elgin Community College. Two more years at Elgin Community College and at Northern Illinois University at Elgin Community College, and you know that that program through its its first two graduating groups has had a, a literal hundred percent success rate. Um, it, that's awesome. Now we need to make sure that the careers they're moving into are careers that, in year six, seven, and eight, they're still growing and that they want to stay in for frankly another three decades beyond that. Um, and so that's that is. I think that is maybe our, our absolute biggest challenge. All right, last question. I know you have a passion for technology. Mm -hmm. If someone comes up to you and says, Jason, what's the most exciting technology in education right now? What would you say? Uh, I'm, I'm still gonna say, and it's not exciting. The most exciting technology is the internet. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the most exciting technology. <laughs> right. And so I'm gonna say it's a Chromebook because a Chromebook is the most sustainable, most manageable, um, way to get the largest number of students meaningfully on the internet. And the reason the internet is the most exciting technology is because it has opened up the world to all students in two really important ways. And we usually only talk about the first one, that's the less important way. And that's it gives them access to these resources. Now, I remember wanting my students, my eighth graders as a teacher to look at um, primary source documents. So if I wanted them to look at primary source documents from World War II, I would. I spent days at the Harold Washington Public Library when it was brand new. I drove down to Champaign-Urbana and spent time 
uh, on the microfiche and microfilm machines at the University of Illinois library. And I printed stuff and then we made gazillions of photocopies and we'd hand them out and the kids would turn them back in so we could reuse them the next year. And that was how they saw primary sources. Literally today, in three seconds on my computer, I could find it, grab the link and share it with the students through a learning management system, a tool like Google Classroom. That is a, a game changer. That is the less important way. The more important way is students can share out their products, their solutions to problems with the whole world and get it out to people. And that I have watched it happen with kids as young as four years old and people of all ages from there. And that is, that is the power of the internet. It is democratizing, it is empowering, um, and it takes the learning from being regurgitation for a multiple choice test to application, which is where we'll know they really learned it. I mean, people are excited when they get to learn that way, when they make a real difference in the world. And, um, and, and we can do that because of the internet. So to me, it is not AR, VR, it is not, I mean, yeah, the mobile phone's great, but we still, not all, not all people have a mobile phone. Like that's, we're close, but we're not there yet. And so bottom line is it's the internet. And, um, and we've made great progress in the last 10 years on getting Illinois schools online with like actual usable internet. And frankly, there's a COVID silver lining. Um, hard to say to people who've suffered from all kinds of horribleness from COVID and, you know, including unfortunately people, loved ones passing away, but, but the COVID, COVID really pushed us forward on, on closing those one-to-one -one gaps. Now, remember what was my big one? Sustainability. So how, how are school districts buying that next round of computers? Yeah. Those Chromebooks have three to five years in them and then they need to be replaced. And the money that was just spent in lots of places on them was short-term money. So sustainability is our, our number one issue. All right, Jason, you got to get out of here. So thank you so much. You're doing great work, Peter. Keep it up. Thank, thank you again. Thanks so much for listening to Teacher's Lounge. That's all we've got for you. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get great guests like Jason. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do subscribe or leave us a rating, share it, whatever you can do. It is the best way to help us get even more perspectives on this show. Please subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date on everything having to do with the show. Find a link to do that on this episode's webpage over at wnij.org. A big hearty thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the music you hear in every episode of this show. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.